0: I thought I told you never to interrupt me while I'm working. He's got more gadgets on him than a Swiss army knife. Hot <coughs> By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then, hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, I've got stories about things from the late 1900s. Yes, you heard me right. The late 1900s. I heard somebody use that phrase last week, and it really made me think for a minute. The late 1900s. The late 1900s is when I was born. I mean, in history books, I always read about the late 1800s, the late 1700s. The United States was formed in the late 1700s. But holy crap, I lived in the late 1900s. After thinking about that, what I wanted to talk about today was the things that we took for granted, things that we used, things that were part of our everyday life in the late 1900s. Now, I know I've done a few episodes about this because there are so many things that were part of our day-to-day lives when I was growing up. But when I heard that phrase, the late 1900s, it just got me thinking again. And so today's episode is about things in the house, things in the world that were everyday things in the late 1900s that just don't exist today. I mean, for instance, in the late 1900s, the early 2000s, text messages cost you a dime apiece. Yes, we had to pay for our texts. Nowadays, it's phone calls and unlimited text messages as part of your data package. But I remember shopping for service based on how much it would cost me per text message back in the late 1900s. But there were so many other things that were just part of our everyday lives in the late 1900s. How about the old sewing machine? My mom was a sewer. I've mentioned this in the past. My mom had a box of patterns. You used to be able to go to the store and buy a pattern for a dress or a shirt or a pair of pants or a necktie. My mom bought patterns. And when you bought the pattern, it would give you all the cutouts, all the different sizes. I'm assuming I didn't do any of the sewing myself, but I'm assuming the sizes were there. But I remember the pattern came in a packet that was probably 8 by 10, about that size and maybe a half inch to an inch thick. And inside the packet was a tissue paper form that had the various pieces of whatever you were sewing cut out on this tissue paper. And then what you would do is you would go to the fabric store, or you could go to the Five and Dime too, like Woolworth's. Nowadays, Walmart actually has a fabric section. Michael's Arts and Crafts, you can get fabric there. But back in the day, You could go to Woolworths, Ben Franklin's, whatever your five and dime was in town. By the way, that's another thing from the late 1900s, the five and dime. The five and dime was like the local mom and pop store in town. But yeah, you could go buy fabric. So if you were making a shirt, for instance, or a dress or whatever, the pattern that you bought would have the amount of fabric that you needed to make whatever it was you were making. And you could get any kind of fabric as long as it fit the pattern. I mean, obviously, you're not making a burlap shirt. You would get a certain kind of fabric for a shirt, a certain kind of fabric for a dress, and then you'd lay your fabric out on the rug. I remember my mom doing this. She would roll that fabric out across the living room rug. Then she'd take the pieces of the pattern, pin it to the fabric so it wouldn't move around, and then she'd cut the form of whatever it is she was making. And then they had sewing instructions so that you would know how to sew the pieces together. And that's where the sewing machine comes in. By the time I moved out of the house, my mom had saved up enough money between her and my dad's savings to get a fancy sewing machine, because she loved to sew. She made herself dresses. She made my dad neckties. She made him this caftan one year for Christmas, which is like a giant robe you pull over. It was a horrible green color. Very, very plaid. It is one of those things that is absolutely indescribable. You actually have to see a picture of it, and there are no pictures of it that I know of, but it was a very hideous green plaid thing that my dad pulled on to keep warm in the wintertime. I don't know if he really loved it or if he really loved my mom, but either way, he wore that caftan a lot. But anyway, mom would take the sewing machine and make these things, and by the time I moved out of the house, she had saved up enough money to buy a Bernina sewing machine. It's weird what stays in your head, but I remember that Bernina. It was her pride and joy. She loved that thing. I mean, she'd had a singer, of course. Who doesn't have a singer? That's like the basic model of a sewing machine, isn't it? Singer sewing machines. But she graduated to the Bernina. It could do zigzags. It could do double stitches. It had like two bobbins on it. I don't know what that means. I just remember her talking about bobbins. But she worked that sewing machine like a magician. It was unbelievable how quickly she could churn things out. Now, as kids, we thought the sewing machine was cool, not because we could sew with it, but in my little mind, that pedal that you push to make the needle go up and down and feed the fabric through, that was the gas pedal. So in my car-addicted little mind, I wanted to play with that gas pedal because I would see mom work it. She'd push it and the needle would go faster. She'd come off of it and the needle would slow down and you could hear the sewing machine. It just got faster. It got slower. It was cool. We were, of course, never allowed to play with the sewing machine or the gas pedal. But it was amazing what she could do with the sewing machine. But when's the last time you saw a sewing machine in anybody's house? Except maybe grandma's. Grandma always has a sewing machine, right? It's always in the guest bedroom on a table. Well, my mom's Bernina was always put away in the case when she was done with it. And that's one of those things I don't know what happened to. The Bernina is missing. It may have gotten sold. It may be at somebody's house. I don't know. I don't know where the Bernina is, but I do remember it. Now, when I was growing up, we had a lot of things in our kitchen that were just standard, in my mind. I just grew up with them. It was just a fact of life. We had them. And you don't see this kind of stuff anymore for a variety of reasons. Some of the stuff you see variations of, but some things you just don't see, like jelly glasses. Now, it's not a glass made out of jelly, but when I was a kid, Welch's put out little jelly glasses... What they would do is they would sell you the jelly for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They'd sell you the jelly in a nice glass jar. And they would offer promotional versions of these jars. For instance, you could get Yogi Bear jelly glasses. And when you bought your jelly, it would have the Welsh's label on the front. But there'd be a picture of Yogi Bear on the back. I remember they had Flintstones jelly glasses too. Now the jelly glasses were 8, 10 ounces, whatever they were. You had to buy the small size of the jelly to get the jelly glass. But what better way to get the kids to get mom to buy Welch's jelly? Put pictures of favorite cartoon characters on the jar. The kids will want it. Mom will have to buy it. Boom, Welch's makes money. But as kids, we didn't care. We just wanted to drink out of the Yogi Bear glass. And yeah, we had a collection of jelly glasses in our cupboard. There was only two or three, but they were awesome glasses for a kid. Cartoon characters on a glass? And it was a glass glass. See, when I was a kid, we kind of had an unspoken rule. The kids weren't supposed to use the glass glasses because we might break them. Because, you know, kids are clumsy and we drop things. But the jelly glasses with the cartoon characters on them? Oh, we could use those. That was fine. Those were for the kids. It didn't hurt that they were an extra thick glass because jelly was shipped in it to the store. But we could use those glass glasses. Otherwise, we had to use plastic glasses. We couldn't break those. But when I was a kid, pretty much every kid that I knew had jelly glasses in their house. It was just a thing. It was a fixture in the house. The other glass glasses that you could get that kids could use were offered by places like McDonald's or Burger King. They would have promotional glasses there. And this is back in the time when they trusted people to get glass glasses home and not break them in the store or on their way home you could find those promotional glasses. Those are fewer and further between, I think, than the jelly glasses. Because every kid had peanut butter and jelly. Every kid wanted peanut butter and jelly. And every kid wanted those stupid Welch's jelly glasses. So we had them. The other glasses that you could get back in the late 1900s, actually this is more mid-1900s, were gas station glasses. Now, I remember vaguely. But I remember that gas stations, when they used to offer full service... That's another thing from the mid-1900s. But when they used to offer full service, they would try to get customers to go to the gas station. And so they would do promotions. I've talked about green stamps before. Some service stations offered green stamps. But some service stations offered glasses. I don't know why, but glasses were a promotion at a service station. I remember seeing commercials about it. I remember reading about it. And I remember going to the gas station to get this week's glass. And it was a weird little thing. Because you could only get one glass at a time. And you could only get a glass if you filled up. At least that's my memory. So if you wanted a set of four glasses, you had to go to the gas station four times and fill up four times. And sometimes the glasses were promotional glasses. For the longest time, I had a New York Giants drinking glass that I guess my dad had gotten at a service station years ago. It was a little round drinking glass. It looked like a ball, basically, except with a flat bottom so it would set on the table. And it had an opening where you would drink out of it. It was about the size of a softball. And on one side was the logo of the New York Giants football helmet. And on the other side, it said New York Giants. And I remember my dad bringing it home and telling me I could drink out of that one. One of those powerful moments as a kid where dad gives you a glass glass to use. So you would get those promotional glasses. But they also had kind of nice looking glasses. I mean, they were not anything special. It was a glass. I mean, how special a glass are you going to get at a gas station? But they were unique and they had the advantage of being free as long as you filled up with gas. And so people would go to the gas stations and get the promotional glasses. Not only do you not see promotional glasses anymore, you don't see full-service gas stations anymore. And you don't really see the gas stations trying to get you to come to their gas station. And yes, when I say full-service, which I mentioned, full-service meant you would drive into the gas station. There was a hose on the ground that would ring a bell inside the gas station when you arrived. So when you pulled up, there would be a ding-ding inside the gas station and an attendant would come out. The attendant would then ask, what do you need? And you'd ask him to fill up the tank. The attendant would also say, can I check your oil? Can I check your air pressure? They'd wash your windshield. They would check the oil for free. And if you needed some, they would sell you a quart right there on the spot. That's what a full-service gas station used to do. And that used to be a thing. Not so much anymore. Another thing in the kitchen that we had, and maybe you do, but I think this is a concept that died out back in the late 1900s. It was the good china. Every family had good china that was always on the top shelf of a cupboard or... It was in the china cabinet with the glass doors that we kids were not allowed to open. Depends on your family, I guess. Our good china was on the top shelf of the cupboard in the kitchen. We never, ever used the good china unless there was company coming. No, 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 no. We did not take chances with a good china. Now, our good china, as I remember it, because it was very rare that I saw it, but as I remember it, it had kind of a pattern of wheat in the middle of it. And then a gold rim around the plates. But it was so rare that I ever saw it that I don't really remember it that well. But I know that other families had good china. Some had flowers. Some had colors. But these were the plates and the bowls and the saucers that you didn't take out unless somebody fancy was coming over. And I mean somebody fancy, not even just family. Because we didn't break out the good china for family get togethers. We didn't have it at Christmas. We didn't have it at Thanksgiving. It was rare that we would use the good china. And as I sit here today, I'm trying to remember ever actually using it in my life. I know it existed. I know where it was kept. I just don't ever remember actually using it. We didn't use the good china because we used the everyday plates. We had a wide variety of everyday plates Mostly because when my dad went to auctions, he would get these boxes of china or plates or kitchenware. He'd get them for a dollar, maybe two bucks. There'd be service for eight in there, except one of the saucers was broken, but we didn't use saucers, so it didn't matter. He'd have eight matching plates and whatever pattern it was, that was what we used. But at some point, we stopped using the odd sets of plates and we switched over to Corelware. You know what Corelware is. You have some in your kitchen right now. If you don't, Your mom does, for sure. Corel are those thin white plates that are supposedly indestructible. You can drop them and they don't break. Except they do. Believe me, I found out how to do it. Just be me and drop it on a tile floor. It'll break. But they're not supposed to break. They're supposed to be resilient. But you know those Corel plates. You know them. You've seen them. Corel made plates. They made bowls. They made saucers. They made dessert dishes. They made percolators. They made casseroles they made everything and they always had four or five different patterns that they put on them the pattern you know about is that blue flower you know the one i'm talking about that blue flower pattern has been around probably longer than i have but it's on every corel percolator you see on tv if you go to a garage sale if you go to an auction if you go to an antique shop you're going to find that corel blue flower we had corel blue flowers we also had corel with the gold border around the edge We also had Corel with a green spring-type intricate woven design around the edge of the plates. There was a Corel mushroom design. I call it the mushroom. I'm not sure what it is. It's just different looking. It's not the blue flower. It's not the gold band. It's not the green band. That's a rare pattern. But anyway, somewhere along the line, my dad got a whole bunch of Corel. And we used that for years. And I'm going to admit to you now, I'm still using the Corel plates. Yes, the exact same plates that I grew up with. They're all in my kitchen cabinet right now. And I still use them. Why? Well, because they're fine. They're plates. I don't have good china, but I have my parents' Corel. The good china, my brother has that. He's welcome to it. My corral plates, they still last. They still work. I mean, what do you need a plate to do? Hold food. Okay, good. It works. But the thing about the corral that I have, there's like four of one pattern, three of another, three of another. So as long as I have a dinner for four or less, we're good. But otherwise, we're going to have a mishmash of all different Corel patterns. But, you know, they're plates. I don't stand on ceremony. If your food isn't served to you in your hands, if you don't have to scoop it off the table, then the plate's doing its job. Back in the mid to late 1900s, Corelware was everywhere. And everybody knows the patterns and everybody had it. The other thing that we had in the kitchen, and every family had it, and every set of grandparents had it, were cans and tins that didn't have in them what it said on the outside was in them. And you'll know what I mean as soon as I say it. The blue tin with the butter cookies. Right? You've seen it. You know it. Grandma had it. Mom had it. Aunt Sally had it. Everybody had that blue tin with butter cookies. There was never a cookie in it. You stored baggies in it. You stored twist ties in it. You would put your sewing kit in there, your needle, your thread. But you never had butter cookies in it. And that was so disappointing to me as a kid because I wanted the butter cookies. But everybody had the blue tin with the butter cookies on it. My mother also had a tin that said Virginia peanut brittle. Oh, I so wanted some Virginia peanut brittle. But we didn't have any. We just had the tin. In mom's tin of Virginia peanut brittle, she kept buttons. Yeah, this is back in a time when people kept jars and tins of buttons. And you know what? If you go to an auction or garage sale, you'll see people still have jars and tins of buttons. Because you never know when you're going to replace a button or need to replace a button. And honestly, I've used my mom's tin of buttons to replace buttons. Yes, I actually know how to sew a button on a coat or a shirt. And yes, I've actually replaced a button on a coat or a shirt. Because sometimes you need to do it. Sometimes you like the shirt. You don't want to lose it. So you find a button, you put it on. But my mom had that tin of Virginia peanut brittle, and I knew it. I knew it for years. There was no peanut brittle in there. But I checked every once in a while in case she'd gotten a new tin. Maybe she actually got some peanut brittle. But it was such a dirty trick. Keeping things in tins that said butter cookies and peanut brittle, and then there being no butter cookies or peanut brittle, I felt so cheated. The other thing we had in the kitchen back in the mid to late 1900s was those copper jello molds hanging on the wall. I think that that was a required decoration in every home built after 1950. And the jello molds could be in any shape, could be a circle, could be an animal, and jello molds were a staple in our lives. In case you don't know, a jello mold is simply the shaped pan that you would pour jello in, put it in the fridge, and make jello in a shape. If you wanted a ring of jello, you'd use the ring mold. When you made jello at home, you'd dissolve it in the bowl, mix it all up, pour it in the mold, put it in the fridge. Now, the jello molds could be in any shape. I think the default shape was a ring. The ring would be fluted or have ridges or little bumps. And it was made of copper and you'd hang it on the wall. I don't know why this became a decorative thing. But if you look in some of the old kitchens, if you look at an old sitcom from the 60s or 70s, if you visit your grandma's house, there's a jello mold hanging on the wall. Not just one, usually two, three, four. Sometimes it was all the same shape. Sometimes it was a wide variety of shapes. You could have any different kind of shape. And they hung these on the wall. I hated them. Mrs. Gamerdude once suggested that we hang some jello molds on the wall. I said, mm-hmm, no, we don't live in a 1970s sitcom. No, I don't object to too much. O molds on the wall. One of the things that I object to. I'm not even sure why. Like I don't mind the Corel percolators. I don't mind the Corel plates. I don't mind the can opener or the toaster on the cupboard. That's fine. That's part of the kitchen. Something about Jello molds on the wall, it just bothers me. I don't know why, but everybody had them. Every kitchen had Jello molds. And I just mentioned the toaster, the can opener. Every counter in the kitchen had something on it when I was growing up. We had the toaster. We had a blender. We had a can opener. And there's nothing wrong with that. You put that on the counter, you use it all the time. Of course you're going to put it out there. Somewhere along the line, they came up with the idea of covering the appliances with these quilted covers. That's something you don't see anymore. But the quilted covers would come in any variety of colorful, kitcheny patterns. And it wasn't just a cloth, it was a structured thing that you would drop on top of your toaster or drop on top of your blender and cover it. Because apparently, a pile of quilted cloth looks better than a toaster. I never understood that. It looked like we had a head on the counter that we were covering with a cloth. It was just this pile of cloth sitting on the counter. But it was a thing. We covered our appliances. The last thing I'm going to mention is the salt and pepper shakers. I talked about them briefly when I was talking about my mom's mom. My grandmother on my mother's side had a huge collection of salt and pepper shakers. Nobody has salt and pepper shakers anymore. You might have a salt shaker in your house. Maybe. But do you have a pepper shaker? It used to be standard to have both. And the matching sets, the cute little corn on the cob, the cute little Amish couple, the cute little teddy bears, the bull and the cow, The thimbles, the dog and the cat, any combination you could think of, they would make a salt and pepper shaker out of it. And if you go to antique shops, you go to flea markets, you can still find salt and pepper shakers. Nobody uses them anymore. I still have a salt shaker in the house. I don't have a pepper shaker. If I need pepper, I go get the pepper out of the cupboard. They have a little slot on the can. You shake the pepper out. Or I use the pepper grinder. But back in the mid to late 1900s, you would fill your pepper shaker with your pepper. And then you'd put the match set on the table and everybody would love the match set. Honestly, I don't miss a salt and pepper shaker. I don't use that much salt. Don't use that much pepper. I put the seasoning in the food when I'm cooking it anyway, so. But that's another thing that used to be everywhere that we don't see anywhere anymore. Maybe at Denny's. You go to Denny's, you can find a salt and pepper shaker. Well, as usual, I have this huge list of things that I was going to talk about today. What did we get through? Five? Six? So you can rest assured, I'll have more episodes of the stuff we used to have in the mid to late 1900s that we don't have anymore. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of things. As always, I really do appreciate all the time you spend here and all the time you take listening to the podcast. It means the world to me, and I can't thank you enough. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves.